It's time for OWC Radio, Tech Talk with Creatives, Conversations with host Serena Catania. This is Serena Catania with OWC Radio, and I'm here at CES, and I ran into Michael Williams. I'm so excited. This man, this young man, (laughs) is the godfather of comedy. That's your nickname, right? A lot of people say that. Yeah. So why CES? What are you doing here? What have you been seeing? Well, when I first started my business, which was in 1985, technology like it is today was not, I mean, it was just not here at all. Not even close, was it? I, I didn't have a computer. I didn't have a cell phone. I didn't have a fax machine, even though I had access to a fax machine. But that was that um, paper that, um, you know, would soon fade, you right. know, and got in the sun. I forgot what it was called. We all got stuck with thermal paper. Yeah, thermal and, paper. And if you didn't yeah. file it right, right, keep it away from the right. air, you went right. like two years later and nothing exactly. was there. Exactly, right? exactly. <laughs> and so this was at the age, really, of, of like the dawning of, 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 of the next wave of creation because so much imagination and creativity was coming on board and technology was moving so fast. Yes. I mean, it was here today and gone tomorrow, obsolete. And so, you know, I had to eventually catch up, you know, with everything to make my life and my business that much more proficient because I had started something from the ground, basically at birth. Uh, the effort to have the first black comedy club, then chain of comedy clubs in the country, simply because there was no effort to uh, have black comedians have a home of their own. They weren't booking them. Yeah, well, they weren't booking them because they were told to either tone it down or they was too black or they weren't really trying to invite an audience that they would be bringing with them because they had their own audience and and they knew how they wanted to entertain their audience, which is understandable, you know? I mean, at the time, that's what they wanted. And so when I saw the opportunity really to start uh, a a facility where not only black comedians had a home, black audience had a place to call home also because nobody was really inviting them. And when I understood psychologically that For the most part in in this country, there was no outlet for a daily dose of humor for African-Americans because there was no facilities for that across the country to go see live stand-up comedy by their own people. And when was this, in like the 60s? When was this? This was in 1985. I had just turned 32 that year. Whoa, okay. And uh, my career... um, and entertainment wasn't going as well as I had hoped. You know, I was a concert promoter, I was an event producer, and I just wasn't getting the contracts that I had hoped I would have gotten, you know, along the way. And so one night I just said, I need to go somewhere and lift my spirits. And the only thing I can think of was a comedy club. But within my community, there were no comedy clubs. So north I went to Hollywood. I knew of two clubs you know, the Hollywood Improv and the Comedy Store. And so I just happened to go to the Comedy Store. And upon going there, you know, they took my money and 
made me buy two drinks on the spot. I was <laughs> two the first, expensive uh, drinks. <laughs> I was the first person in the club. And as the room started to fill, that's when the show, you know, began. And it was a guy that was the host who happened to just be, you know, white guy, no, you know, big thing. But it was white after white after white comedian. And they weren't funny. I wasn't getting my money's worth. I felt like I'd been robbed. I wanted to lift my spirits. You know, not somewhere, and it cut my throat. <laughs> you know, I wanted to laugh. I wanted to feel good. And so finally, I see a black guy come into the room. And I said, about time. I'm not the only one black here now. You know, I got somebody, I can at least say, hey, you know, somebody else is here, look like me. But I noticed he made a turn towards the backstage of the, of the room. And I said, well, maybe he's a comedian. Maybe he's performing. Turned out he was performing and he was the last comic of the evening. And I said to myself, see, white people always put the black folks on last. You know, oh, I said, no. all right. Who was it? His name was T.J. McGee. And unfortunately, T.J. McGee passed away about six months ago of, of heart failure, heart attack, something like that. But anyway, uh, when he got on stage and started doing his routine, he turned out to be worse than all the other guys before him. And I'm like, come on, brother. At least you can give me something, you know, give me a little bit of my money's worth. Yeah, make, make, make the race proud, you know. And it really wasn't until he did his last bit, you know, and what he did was he put on a robe, a big old green robe, looked like a choir robe out of church. Then he grabs a book and he opens it up and he starts to mimic that of a preacher, like a old black Baptist preacher. And I said to myself, I can relate to that. I grew up in a black Baptist church and I remember how they talked. And I said, man, this would be great if it was all black. And at that very moment, the light went on. And I realized I could actually bring something like this to life. Because if I had to come and find it, then that means my people who I considered, if I didn't know where to go or if I only knew of where to go and it wasn't really for us, then my people don't know where to go because it's not a service provided to right. us. Right, absolutely. And that was March 85. August 85, I was in business and the rest is history because the explosion of the greatest group of black comedians in, in the history of this country exploded out of just the efforts that I, you know, instilled into wanting to bring comedy to the black community. That's awesome. Yeah. So tell us about some of the first people. I hope you don't <laughs> mind us going into the history because I know everybody wants to talk to you about this, but there's a whole new generation of kids that yeah, don't know about this. Right. And so um, that first generation of comics included people like, and to me, he was my all-time favorite, even though he passed away. And even though people complain about him taking up all the time on stage, because he was actually my host. And I built the club around him because he was that one culturally black comedian that, that the white clubs said, no, you're too black and you need to tone it down or we're really not looking for you. That's who I ended up having as my first host. 
from the day I started to the day before he passed away. His name was Robin Harris. And Robin Harris was the guy that coined the joke or the, uh, the story that turned into an animated film called Bebe's Kids. And he single-handedly back then was really, uh, shall I say, he was the backbone of black comedy. Everybody in the country traveled to see him comedic-wise. I mean, everybody from Chris Rock to Eddie Murphy, Dave Chappelle to Kim Coles and Bill Bellamy and, you know, just on and on. Everybody wanted to come see who this guy was because sing, single-handedly, he just held court every single night at the club. And I mean, people were lined up early just to see him. And when I say that the comics were upset because he would dominate I knew it was something special about him. That's why I never really got irritated or wanted to like squeeze him to like, come on, man, you know, you can't just keep dominating everything. Right. I knew something was rare about him. And important. And that's why I kind of felt from the day of the first show that our relationship was not going to last. Either it was the industry going to take him from me or death. And it ended up that death took him away. I'm sorry. Yeah. Not even a full five years of his living there, but he loaded up so much of his talent that he still lives today because a lot of people don't know who he is, but everybody knows who Bebe's kids are. And that generation that doesn't really know him or the history of the comedy act theater is the generation that truly does need to know because in the beginning I dealt with maybe 30, 40 comedians. Now there are thousands upon thousands of comedians, not just here in the United States, all over the but world. now all over the world right. because a lot of countries were able to see what we were doing over here because when it exploded and when cable and television, you know, got hold of it, and watch the germination of now a new crop of talent that is really starting to say, hey, we are here now and we're about to dominate this industry. That's when it started to just, you know, basically uh, spread across the world because you have thriving communities and a lot of people don't know this in places like Kenya and Uganda, Nigeria, Malawi, South Africa, the UK, the Caribbean. I mean, you got comedians now all over the place. And some of these individuals are multi-millionaires because, you know, um, their countries need entertainment too. Everybody needs, everybody yeah. pays everybody for needs to laugh once yeah. in a while, you yeah. know? So I'm curious because it took a lot of guts. It took a lot of, you know, stick to itiveness. What got you to the point where you were strong enough to make this happen? Because this is huge. When I saw the opportunity to bring this, this endeavor to light, although I didn't have any money, in essence, I was down to my last $1,000. And it didn't matter that I just had $1,000 because at first I said, I can't spend this money. This is all the money I got. And, and then a voice said, but you broke. A thousand dollars is no money. Spend the money. Oh wow! 
And that's exactly what wow. I did. I used my last $1,000 to bring to life, you know, organized black comedy. And there was a point when I just said, I have to will this into existence because it was really not just an opportunity, you know, to start a business. It was an opportunity really to heal what I considered a race that needed an outlet. Absolutely. Because we just didn't have it. And as a little boy, I always felt a duty to my race to be a servant, but I didn't know how. And when the light came on that night, I felt like now I understand my purpose, my duty, my call to service. And that's what I did. And so it was never about the money, you know, it was because money is just too, like a hammer and nail. You know, just use it to make things grow and and or build a foundation. And that's what I did. And so um, I just believed in myself and I just believed that there was uh, this strong urge to just bring something to life that didn't really exist. And I was determined to do that. And there was nothing. There was nobody that can get in the way of that. I just didn't allow it. That's awesome. Yeah, it's, it's courageous. But you know what? When that voice speaks to you and you listen, mm -hmm. isn't mm -hmm. it amazing what can happen? Right. Because there were there were times when, for example, when I saw the opportunity that night that I had a chance to bring something to life. It took me a while to sleep. Then I started having dreams of being on stage in front of thousands and thousands of people. And what was odd about that dream was I could never see my face. I always was looking at the back of me. And then it dawned on me, that wasn't me. That was the show I put on with the relationship between the performer and the audience who never really knew each other. And I was basically creating a marriage between two groups that were like, where have you been? You know, I've been looking for you. And now that, you know, I got you, I'm not letting you go. We are married. We're That's wedded awesome. till death do us part. Comedy comes from a very deep place. Good comedy. Yes. Comes from a very deep place. Yes. I don't think a lot of people appreciate that or understand that, you know. And the world has changed a lot mm -hmm. since the mid-80s. Right. And I think you helped to change it. Right. You really did. Right. And it's evolving all the time. Mm-hmm. I like to think it's getting better. I don't know. I hope it is, and, you know, but I'm, I'm glad there are people like you out there doing what you do. Mm -hmm. It's just pretty wonderful. Yeah, and, and that was something that I learned because really it was, uh, what, you know, it was, it was like on-the-job training for me. Mm -hmm. You know, I had never really dealt with those many different personalities at one time. I didn't realize that I was bringing into my circle a group of individuals that once they saw the opportunity, had this thirst and hunger to want to, you know, be this great performer. I didn't realize what I was really initiating because it became this, this beast that was thirsty for, you know, just recognition. But not only was that coming from the performers, 
the audience were demanding more and more and more because they realized, wow, you know, we've never been fed this before and we want more. Yeah. And so the demand was on both me to satisfy, you know, my audience and at the same time to satisfy the talent by bringing more and more energy to the table, meaning I had to, to continue to, you know, push the comedians to get better. I had to encourage more people that wanted to be comedians to take a chance. So I never auditioned anybody. You know, if somebody said, I want to uh, be a comedian, I think I can do this. And I say, well, you're on next. Give wow. A and you scared the heck out of them, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, because they were saying, no, I don't know. That's I said, really well, hard then, to do. then when you're ready, come back and see me and you'll be going on. And some people got on right then and there. And, and even if they bombed, it was okay. It's like breaking the shell open, right? right? Cracking right. the egg. Right. Because I told them, I said, this is where you have to take chances. The stage is where, I don't know if I can use profanity, but I said the stage is where you fuck up till you get it right. Over and over and over. And don't worry about nothing. Because the audience at the time, see, everybody was new to each other. So there was allowances for right. everybody to kind of like, yeah, you know, we, we were seeing where we were new. And so... I noticed that in time, a lot of the performers just got more and more confidence in themselves. And then one day you just see the light come on, you know, whereas they were saying the same thing for weeks. Just this one night, somebody laughed that ignited the audience to oh, laugh. It was awesome. like, oh, we didn't get it back then. Now we get it now. Yeah. And so you just saw where that relationship just came together and everybody was you know, now in sync with each other. And it was just a love relationship. I mean, a love, love relationship. Because again, for somebody to be an adult and realize they have never laughed like this in their life. Wow. And to have somebody on stage recognize that they've never been listened to and appreciate it. So in essence, you have this cultural voice that is being heard and a cultural voice that's being expressed. And for so many people, that was a first time experience. You're gonna make me cry. I don't want you to cry. But that was, that was the strength of, of really the organized effort to raise black comics and a black audience to have a voice within the entertainment industry that for the most part was neglected. Wow. And now, oh my gosh. Now it's off the chart. It's like night and day, isn't it? Yeah. How do you feel about that? You know, I, I feel great that I was able to do something. And the one thing that was most recognizable was the fact that when you allow somebody the freedom of expression, right, just to be themselves. Yeah, let it go. Let them be you know? who they are. In other words, the one thing that I learned most important about that period was that all I had to do was get out of everybody's way and just let them be themselves. Yes, 
there were certain things I didn't want. Like I didn't want too much profanity or I didn't want too much of the N-word used because not everybody listens or responds to that. But I wanted people to explore what was inside of them, just to bring out who and what they were, you know, or what they are. And that was when a lot of comics were like, I can just be me now. And when I had my audience sometimes, you know, come to me with displeasure saying, you know, these people, they're not funny. They're not that good. My mother's better than them. <laughs> my uncle's better than them. My cousin's better than them. My little brother's better than them. And I would say, then bring them tomorrow. There we'll get go. them on stage. There you go. Good for you. <laughs> and that happened on a few, few did occasions. It really? Yeah. Oh, and did it work? Were they yeah. funny? Yeah. <laughs> and, and then there were other people who were bringing their friends, supporting their friends, because they said, you know, you're funny, girl. You, you, you better than them. And then all of a sudden, they collectively say, we'll give you $50 if you get on stage. Her name is Melanie Carmacho. <laughs> and my sister that night saw her, you know, because she was able to get on stage that night. And my sister said, you need to come back again. Maybe tomorrow night. Now she's one of the more popular yeah. comedians around. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's amazing. She opens for, you know, sometimes Chris Tucker. If a young comedian walked up to you today and said, how can I be better at my craft? What, what do I need to know to be better at, at what I do? What would you tell them? I would tell them, first, how often do you get on stage? Uh, because you need to get on stage. That's the only way, you know, you're going to get better. Two... Um, what is your point of view? You know, just what is it that you want to tell everybody? You know, what's coming out of your center? And then I would tell them that, um, I would ask them, how much do you read? How often do you write? How often do you talk to people? Black, white, green, yellow, 150 years old, six months old. How often do you find these different stories, these different personalities that basically is just a kaleidoscope of what we are basically all about. I mean, there is a story coming from everybody because our eyes can only see what we see, but there are millions of eyes that see what we haven't seen. And those experiences is what is really a sum total of what humanity is all about. It's just great when somebody can tell it in a story, yeah. you know, or in a routine that is entertaining. And that's what I tell comics to uh, think about. But I also tell them that if you are not serious, then this is something you should leave alone. Because this is really only for those that want to be great. Meaning this is a profession that one has to look at and say, I'm better than Chris Tucker. I'm better than Jamie Foxx. I'm better than every comedian that's ever been and will be. I'm number one. Because now that the numbers are greater, the fight to get there is harder. And you really have to fight to get in front of the crowd. Because the people that I just named they really didn't have anybody in front of them. So the Richard Pryors and the Red Foxes and 
you know, I can't think of every, you know, in other words, just a lot of other comedians right. that were both black and white. They didn't really have that group of people in front of them because time, you know, and generation was um, uh, the space between them. And so when I started, this was an emerging group performing to, again, a generation of people that had never been to an organized effort to see comedy. So everything was brand new. And the Richard Pryors and the Red Foxes were a generation above. They were a little older, even though their careers were like picked up and celebrated by this group now because I made sure that they had a chance to see these people. You know, right? you were battling more than just finding good comedians, too. You're battling the whole subculture of can we build the business and can right. we get the money to sustain this and right. how do we reach our audience and all of that stuff, which wasn't easy back then. I mean, you've got the mind for it, obviously. Yeah, yeah. And, and well, again, I was determined to bring it to life. Mm -hmm. There was nothing that mm -hmm. could stop me. So whatever I had to do, I did. And one of the things that I think I did more than anything, I was able to sell the idea of, of, of something missing in one's life that needed to be filled. And that's what I did. For example, when I opened up my third comedy club in Atlanta, I leased a building that had been abandoned for like two years. It needed air conditioning, heating, roof fix. It needed uh, bathrooms, you know, inventory it needed tables chairs uh lights sound it needed everything you can imagine just to get it up and running and i was given four months free rent to do that and i still had to get a liquor license Ooh. and so again i was faced with no money meaning i negotiated the deal i paid nineteen thousand dollars which was first last and security they gave me four months of free rent. At the time, I only had $23,000 $23, to work with. Mm -hmm. So now I got $4,000 left to do everything in four months <laughs> before I had to pay my <laughs> first, you know, oh my God. months, you know, lease. Again, I willed everything into existence wow. because I am working during the winter uh, in the cold in an abandoned building that now I have to re, you know, re remodel and refurbish and all that. And in the evenings, I had to change clothes and go out and meet and network, you know, meet organizations. Right, I lined up organizations. I looked in the book and directories and I would ask if I could come speak to their organizations just to introduce myself. That's how I started building my network. And then, you know, I was just selling something that, again, nobody had in their life. I had to convince them that they didn't realize that they didn't have what they didn't know, you know, yeah. was there for them. Yeah, you don't know what you don't know. Right. And it was really day one that when I opened the doors, because I got it ready, I got a liquor license, you know, the week before I oh, opened, goodness. it just all fell into place. Sweat. It's only a week till we open, I don't have a license yet. And I, um, again, um, gave opportunity to comedians that I felt uh, were serious about their careers. 
uh, I brought them from Los Angeles to Atlanta. I had four comedians from LA and I had, I think, two or three comedians from Atlanta, you know, that I had met, you know, and mm -hmm. I said, hey, I need y'all to open up the show. And again, I stepped back, got out of everybody's way because it was the relationship between the talent and the audience I was, you know, initiating. And uh, one lady named AJ Sanders from LA, you know, was my comedian. Uh, another comedian named Joe Torrey, you know, from LA. Another guy named Chris uh, Charles from LA. And another amateur that now is kind of big time is DL Ugly. And this, again, was just to show them, you know, hey, if this is what you really want, then this is what it is. So that was their first gig on the road. That was March 1990. April 1990, I ended up bringing to Atlanta my first $1,000 a show comedian. We did Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. I was already selling out Friday and Saturday, and I said, I'm not giving that money up. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> the, the weekend nights, this is where we're going to you know, do it. And we ended up doing two shows a night. Wow. That was Chris Rock, <laughs> who awesome. was, I think, still on Saturday Night Live or just come off of Saturday Night Live. But that was $1,000 a show. We did six shows on the first show. No, after the first show on the first night, he came to me and he said, hey, man, these other two comics are stealing all the laughter before I can get to the crowd. So stick me in the middle of them. My money stays the same, but I need to make sure I can get to them because the first two comics were so... How can I say it? When you have something new, people are excited. In other words, this is brand new, so they just right. really buy into it. Right. And again, to see a nucleus of talent that was really superior at the time. So even, in other words, these guys have been doing it now three or four years. So they were polished now. And so this new audience was getting class A. Wow. 100% sirloin. Yeah. <laughs> And so grass fed, grass fed, right. top sirloin. So when when Chris Rock said, put me in the middle of these two guys, he didn't even know these guys. And those the first one was Joe Torrey. <laughs> and the second one who closed out the show was Jamie Foxx. <laughs> that was April 1990. What a great memory. Yeah. What yeah, a great, yeah. just a wonderful yeah. memory, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And it brings a lot of joy to me and it brings a lot of uh how can i say it it's like i did good satisfaction yeah 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 well like, you followed your instructions yeah yeah it's like i didn't do too bad no you did great even though sometimes i say wow people don't appreciate sometimes what you've done for them or even recognize the importance of what one person has done and i brought to life an industry you did so what's new on the horizon? What's going well, on now? What's new on the horizon now is, you know, and, and that's why I'm here at CES. Mm -hmm. uh, I've been coming now for, I think this is my fourth year. Oh, okay. And uh, I'm recognizing that technology is here to stay. And what took years to build in some places, it's, it's like taking weeks. 
in other places. Yeah. You know, in other words, you don't have to lay ground or shall I say lay wire in the ground. You don't have to dig no more ditches. Right. You know, you don't have to string up no more poles. Right. Everything's internet. And so now people have wireless connectivity all over the globe. And it's shortening the distance between being able to do something um, what would have taken weeks and months to do to just days and maybe weeks because you can just connect right then and there and bring in a whole new community right at the touch of a button. Do you think there's any difference in the response or the, what's the word I want, the um, impact that live comedy makes versus comedy that you might watch on the bigger little screen or on your phone? Is there something being in the live audience that helps connect with the comedian more or does it really make a difference? Well, the live audience is the experience for those that are there. Okay. You know, because right. it's live. Right. But it's it's also easier sometimes to just sit back and watch it on your television or your tablet yeah. or your phone because you can get a lot more, you know, in a single, yeah. you know, you, you, you can see a lot more of a variety. Right. For example, if you look at a YouTube video and there are similar videos, you know, you're watching one after the other, after the other, after the other. Still entertaining because these are to a degree in front of a live audience and then it may switch to uh, some kind of a little sitcom or something, you know, mm -hmm. that somebody created. Mm -hmm. And so... Again, that's making the variety of the entertainment medium that much more, for some, entertaining because they can get a lot more than going out and they're not spending no money. They're not right. it's going expensive, through traffic. Yeah. There's it's, something it's about like it's free. Yeah, it is. There's also something, though, about being in the middle of a live audience when that laughter catches and mm -hmm. you can feel the energy mm -hmm. in the room. Mm -hmm. That's still kind of cool. Oh, Although I do want, like really, watching at home, too, yeah. but I don't know. Yeah. There's something about it. Yeah. But it's giving the generations that are coming an opportunity to see what it's going to be like when they're able to go. So I didn't grow up watching live stand-up comedy. That didn't exist for me. It didn't really exist for a lot of us because... Wasn't there. Wasn't there. You know? And I'm saying... For example, in 1995 or eight, I forgot, my niece was graduating from elementary school, going to middle school. And I'll never forget when the kids were walking across the stage and they were getting their little diplomas and they were announcing, you know, what they plan to be when they get big. Yeah. And one little boy said, when I grow up, I'm gonna be a football player and a comedian. Oh. And, <laughs> Everybody, the whole room just went berserk, you know, and I laughed. I said, boy, that's funny, you know. And then later, another little boy said, I want to be a fireman or a football player or something like that. And I want to be a comedian. And then I said, what have I done? I realized I penetrated a generation yeah, below awesome. the generation below me. That's awesome because now they're seeing it for themselves and they're seeing the possibility that I can do that. I mean, little kids, I can do that. I want to be just like That's Chris awesome. Tucker, Martin Lawrence, you know, Jamie Foxx, 
little kids. And now they're in their 20s. I think it's wonderful because comedy really is about telling a story and mm-hmm. sharing your cultural mm-hmm. similarities, right? right? I mean, to really understand a comedian, I think you have to understand, you have to feel part of that culture, right? Right. right. So right. you have to be there and you really have to get the underpinnings of what's being discussed. And you were saying uh, before we actually even started recording, you were talking about some of it coming from pain, right? coming from right. the hard times. And and helping people, mm-hmm. we didn't get this far into it, but I, I mean, I, I really do think that if you can come from pain, mm-hmm. and you know more about it than I do, this is just, I'm surmising, you can come from pain, and if you can share that in a way that helps other people understand that there are others who go through the same thing, mm-hmm. then you're giving them the strength to get mm-hmm. through it, right? Mm-hmm. Am mm-hmm. I right mm-hmm. about that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you are. And that was something that, again, it was on-the-job training for me right. when I was learning right. about human nature and, and, and just, for the most part, what makes up a human being and its psychology. Because I didn't know initially that a lot of these people who were wanting to perform had issues, whatever they may have been. I didn't know that's what drove them to find a place to let that go. And, you know, to hear some of the stories along the way, I said, oh, that's why you are kind you know, that's why you're on stage. You, you need this stuff out, you know. It's some dark stuff, some yeah. deep stuff, and some, not all that. Some is just things that happened that affected them in a way where they held on to it and never knew how to let go of it. Yeah, right. You know, and comedy was one way of just letting go, you know, being able to just throw it back out there, get it off their soul, and, you know, just feel human. That's that's what was so great. Yeah. Yeah, to see that transformation because you realize that some of them still struggle, mm-hmm. but that's their way of coping. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a healing. Mm-hmm. It's a definite, very right. strong healing. Right. I'm so happy to have met you. Well, likewise. <laughs> it's nice likewise, talking to you. Likewise. So for those who are going to be listening into this, it is very noisy in this room. We are in the media room at CES, and uh, unfortunately the ceilings are open. So I do hope that you're going to be able to to understand what Mr. Williams has been talking about because uh, he's really made a difference in the world with his introduction of his comedy and all these wonderful comedians that he's helped along the way. And I know that you're just getting started. You're not done yet. Oh, no, I'm a youngster. You are. I got got a global community going after right now. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, anything that we can do to help. And I want to thank OWC Radio for sponsoring this. So, I get the pleasure of talking to <laughs> wonderful people like you. I was very moved by what you were saying. And I, I think that anyone like you that can come in and help others with what you do, you know, you really did listen to that big voice that right. came to you and said, this is it. The light went out, went on. Right. And you said, this is it. Right. And uh, But you had the courage and the strength right. and the fortitude to do it. And that's just really Amazing. Because I I didn't do it for me. Absolutely. It wasn't about me. I just saw myself as an instrument to be used. Right. And I just went to work. Right. 
Well, we're glad you did. And we hope we get to talk to you again, okay. maybe under quieter circumstances. Okay. But uh, thank you for listening. Now, where can people go to uh, find out more about you and what you can do? Go, well, they can go simply to my website, which is comedyactplanet.com. And that's comedy, C-O-M-E-D-Y-A-C-T, P-L-A-N-E-T dot com. Comedyactplanet.com. Do it. Go there. Visit it. Learn more. And uh, we'll hopefully have you back on very, very soon. Okay. And thanks again to to OWC. And you guys, you know what I tell you every time. Get up off your chair and go do something wonderful today. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you.